It's time to accelerate. Hi, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Join me as I host conversations with the leading experts in sales, marketing, sales automation, sales process, leadership, management, training, coaching, any resource that I believe to help you accelerate the growth of your sales, your business, and most importantly, you. Good morning and welcome to Accelerate. Yeah, I couldn't be more excited to talk with my guest today. Joining me is Tom Searcy, the author of a new book entitled Life After the Death of Selling, How to Thrive in the New Era of Sales. Now, you may Tom know Tom as well because he's a co-author of a great book called Whale Hunting, How to Land the Big Sales and Transform Your Company. You know, there's a lot of talk about how sales is changing. In fact, some Experts, and I use that sort of in quotes, claim that sales is dead. In fact, one forecast I recently read projected that fully 25% of business-to-business sales reps will be out of a job by 2020. I mean that these jobs just won't exist, replaced by online transactional buying journey that doesn't require sales reps. Now, I don't expect the changes to be that severe, and unless, and this is a big unless, unless companies and sales reps don't change. You know, that's the challenge for sellers, how to stay relevant and value-added in the eyes of their customers. And my guest today, Tom Searcy, is going to share with us exactly what he believes how sellers need to do or what they need to do to thrive in this emerging sales environment. So, Tom, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Andy. Glad to be here. So, tell us a little bit about you. Well, <clears throat> I'm uh, fortunately been in uh, business for now about oh, 30 years and I've had the opportunity to grow four companies uh, that have grown from either 10 million to 100 million or start up to 200 million and all that has been with uh, being small companies selling very very large companies uh, and selling very large pieces of business. Oh, I love so, it. That's exactly what I did as well. Oh, it's great. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I've got uh, three kids and live in Indiana and uh, I have a consulting firm that focuses on teaching and training companies to be Davy and uh, be effective in uh, really competing against Goliath to go sell those big, larger Fortune 500 and other companies to get big pieces of business. Oh, I love it. Yeah, I and mean, that's, as I said before, and that's, I worked for, gosh, a number of startup companies in Silicon Valley and Southern California, and, and that's exactly what we did, is we were selling large, multi-million dollar complex communication networks competing against the big guys, right? So right. How, how did we win? That was really sort of the secret net. So how I started my business as well. So tell us what some of these companies were that you're working with that you got your start in sales. You know, and really, I I got my uh, start in operations. Really, I started as a uh, chief operations officer and general manager, CEO and president. And I I really have a bend towards operations. I really have a bend towards uh, systems and processes that really make you effective over and over again in large account sales. And uh, my perspective on that is is that, you know, magicians and rock stars in sales are great for small and mid-sized sales, but if you're going to get big sales, you need a, a team. And not a team of salespeople, but you need a team of subject matter experts with the leadership of an executive who has a sales understanding and sales perspective. So, um, you know, I had the opportunity to sell about 190 Fortune 500 companies inside of uh, four different companies whose names you don't know because they're small and mid-sized. Sure, companies. sure, yeah. Well, so why is it that small companies, oftentimes small business, small mid-sized businesses, think that they can't go compete for these big orders? I think that you know the first part, Andy, is just mindset, right? I mean, 
Uh, there's this sense that, oh, gosh, I, we're just don't have the resources or the big guys won't take us seriously and that they, they're looking for the stability and the financial resources of a big company. So it's really their own mindset that keeps them from taking the next step. Secondly, they're, they're looking at their own infrastructure and to a degree they're a little afraid of getting the big piece of business because they're saying, if I get this big p- piece of business, how will I handle it? Um, you know, so, I've, got, I've got a strategy for that. I'm sure you do as well. <laughs> well, I do. And I'm glad you do as well, because I think these things, again, are self-limiting beliefs. And because they're self-limiting, you can't get to the mechanics of landing a piece of business if you don't overcome the mindset that's keeping you back. So <clears throat> I think if you change the mindset of, yes, we can, from no, we can't, then you can look at the mechanics of a process that changes your success rate and increases your chance of winning those big pieces of business. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, 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 one strategy, not to jump ahead too far in the conversation, that I always used with clients and actually myself when I was on these large complex deals as a small company is what I call the start small theory, which is, yeah, I mean, and I talk about this in my latest book, is, you know, a customer wants to buy, 10 big systems and if you had to go install them all at one time as part of a big project yeah it's beyond your the scope of your logistics ability to handle it but if you sell one at a time and especially if you narrow that first part of that first deal down to one deal instead of 10 systems then the bigger guys tend to lose interest right if they think the size of the deal has shrunk <laughs> from 10 to 1 uh, they oftentimes lose interest and walk away at least that's what I'd found Well, I think that that's accurate. I think you can also sign up the large contract and build it into phases of implementation, which I think is very similar to what you're saying. Mm -hmm. And building in that phases of implementation uh, allow you to have the larger contract outlined so you have the confidence that we're going to get the entire piece of business. But through those phases of implementation, um, you're able to control, as you would uh, indicate, your infrastructural support of it. Yeah. Well, I'm thinking that's it's such a great strategy for smaller companies too, because you know the big companies, the sales reps, the managers, you know, they're accustomed to thinking, "Look, I need to bite off revenue in big chunks." That's right. <laughs> and if it starts looking like it's going to be a series of smaller chunks that have higher risk associated with them, they lose interest. You're right. You're absolutely right. And uh, exactly. And commission drives those. Uh, drives drives everybody in sales, but on those uh, bigger folks, they just have much bigger quotas. Yeah. Yeah. No. Very interesting. So okay. Well, maybe we'll get back to that. But I, I had a really another topic I wanted to to uh, explore. Is and really, I'll start with the question. You know, is is based on what I was talking about the sort of the interview prelude? Is you know people projecting the death of sales? I mean, is, is selling on the verge of dying? Well, the Department of uh, the U.S. Department of Labor Statistics does indicate that uh, 22% of the business-to-business jobs are going to go away between now and 2020. Um, that's a million jobs, and they're going to go away. And now, so but so that's the U.S. Department of Labor Statistics. And so, why are they going to go away? Well, you mentioned it earlier. The transactional jobs are going to go away 33%. Um, the jobs that are in the ability to uh, install and explain how it works and to demonstrate um, how products and systems work, the 22% of those are going to go away. And the jobs that in sales that are about completing RFPs and RFQs and facilitating interactions with procurement and purchase, well, 25% of those jobs are going to go away. So those four, uh, those three areas, those jobs are going to go away. So that's going to make up the uh, million 
jobs are going to go away. But there's this fourth area, which is really the growth area. It's going to grow by 10%, Andy. And that's the job called the lead me job. And the lead me job is the sales role of going out in the marketplace, working with companies who, and, and telling them not uh, you know, asking them what is your problem. It's those salespeople who can, can walk in and say, I know who you are in your marketplace. I know within categories what your most likely problems are. And I have an idea of how to solve that problem for you. And that's a lead me strategy rather than a consultative ask me strategy. And that's the area that's going to grow in the course of the next five years. Interesting. And I, I, interesting that you contrast that with the consultative sale. So, I mean, because there's an aspect of consultation in both of them. What you're saying, though, is that the difference is going to be coming up is that, uh, again, you said it's more of a leadership. It's that you you know you have an answer for them. It may not be clear initially what that specific solution is going to be, but you know you're inspiring them to follow you. That's right. I, you know, we refer to it as the neighborhood versus the, the house number. And we say, look, this is the neighborhood of where your problems are. This is the neighborhood of where your competitors are going. And this is the neighborhood, Mr. Customer, for us that your customers are going. We have a solution inside of this neighborhood of area of problems, but we don't know exactly what the house number is. Now, let's go in in a consultative way and let's get some precision together on where that house number is. So it allows you to lead in a general form and then it brings you back to a consultative model so that you can get precision with your customer on how that affects them directly. Right. And even the consultative model, I think, is is changing. And again, because again, much more of a leadership role required because the term that's coming up more and more is this co-creation. Right. That's right. Um, so we're going to work with the customer to co-create some value that they're going to from which they're going to be able to drive the ability to make a decision about which way to go. Exactly right. And I, that term co-creation, uh, I think, is the better term for uh, the current model and the go forward model of uh, the consultative sale because the consultative sale has moved forward unfortunately uh, customers are impatient I mean I shouldn't say unfortunately the nature of customers is that they are impatient they are expecting you to be bringing with you answers more answers and fewer questions yeah well I think that speaks to what you talk about in your book is that the nature of the relationship with the customer is really changing. And I, and I wrote about this in my, my first book, Zero Time Selling, is that you know they really don't want you to take them to lunch anymore and play golf with them. They want to know what you've done for them, right? What are you going to do for them? Well, you, you bring up a great point. That's one of the evolutional changes, uh, evolutionary changes that's gone on. And that you, you make a huge point there. The ability to develop the personal relationship has actually been restricted by governance and by time constraints. Some people can't sit down and have uh, lunch with you or play golf anymore because they've got <laughs> rules. They're too busy, right? And, and so, they have rules, as you said. That's right. Yeah. So, so yeah, it gets more down about. I don't know. I, I, uh, you know, one of the themes I think that you brought out in your book too. I said it's you know, what have you done lately for me? It always brings to mind this quote that I'd found from Jeff Bezos, founder CEO of Amazon. But what I thought was sort of summed up sales the best I'd ever seen it. And he was saying, you know, we don't make money when we sell things we make money when we help customers make purchase decisions mm -hmm. and that's really what you're talking about right is is the nature of the relationship with the customers how do we help them get this job done not how do we build this friendly personal relationship that you know 20 50 
hundred years ago was seeming to be the really a hallmark of selling. I think that I, that's a great quote, and I really agree with it. One of the ones that I agree that matches up with that, of course, is that salespeople are always uh, selling a better future, and they're giving confidence to their customers that by making a choice with them, there is a better future for the buyer and the buyer's company, right? So it's about a better future every time you meet with them. Right. And one of the things you talk about that I think is is really important is that there's fewer opportunities to meaningfully engage with prospects these days. So right. you really have to, as you talked about, you know, bringing the team of specialists, but you really have to be focused on, you know, what is deliberately focused on what is the value I'm going to provide during this interaction, during this one of these few opportunities I have to really meaningfully interact with the buyer. Well, that's that's true. And, and some things have changed. As you know, Andy, <clears throat> five years ago, uh, the key decision makers in a large purchase were about three people. Three people were involved in the buying process. In the last five years, and this is a crazy number, uh, but it has grown from three people in the buying decision on the prospect side to seven people. So, you know, when you're in, in buying processes, change selling processes, not the other way around. No, absolutely right. Right. So if they added three people, they went from three people to seven people, we have to likewise change our approach. Now, in the same window of adding a lot more people, their desire to spend more time with us with that number of people has decreased. So you add more people, but you cut the amount of time you want to spend with us. Uh, Those two things competing against each other make it difficult. (laughs) Right. And well, part of that, too, is that they're they're more self-sufficient. Right. That's so, right. I mean, there's the access to all this information. I mean, you use the, the you quote the CEB research saying that, you know, f- buyers are 51, 57% away through their decision making process before they engage with sellers. That's right. Yeah. Why, why is that so controversial? I mean, that, that number, when people use it, you know, there's, there's different factions. Some like that number and some really hate that number and think it's completely irrelevant. In fact, serious decisions came out with a study that seemed to sort of contradict that. So, does it really matter? Is it just, isn't it really just the absolute number is not really as important as the fact is the customer is more self-sufficient? You know, you, you bring up the exact um, idea that I think makes the point. The point is, is that if the customer is more self-sufficient, when a, when a salesperson comes in, they, are, they do not feel like they are in control or absolute control of the customer in the process. The process has, or the, the customer has more control of the information that is out there, and therefore they are influencing the, uh, the conversation at a greater uh, rate. You know, uh, gosh, I, um, my father, 35 years ago, when he was selling, and I had the privilege of riding along on some of his sales calls when I was very young. Very cool. What did he sell? Uh, he was selling pressure-sensitive labels and packaging materials and the machines uh, that would go ahead and apply those, mm-hmm, robots mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff. So, And he was a territorial sales rep. And so I was very young, and I would go on these uh, trips with him. And uh, when I did, you know, he would walk in to meet with people and they would go, wow, I've never seen anything like this. Show me how it works and what would we do with that? How would it get applied and all the rest of those kinds of questions. Now, if he went out in the marketplace right now, they could have accessed that all online, seen videos about all of that, compared the companies out online. They could have looked at blogs to find out about what people thought about his company versus other companies. I mean, the amount of information that somebody would have when they walked in the door, they would know model numbers, right, Andy, about what pieces of equipment. And so uh, my father would be in a position of defending 
or, or interacting with someone about down to model number level about speed and quality of all the things and including price. And so he's now already behind the curve of the conversation rather than introducing new ideas. He's either combating or, or affirming the concepts of the piece of the customer. Now you don't feel like you're uh, directing the conversation. You feel like you're responding to an interrogation. Right, right. Which is no place to be if you're trying to sell something. You don't want to be behind the curve. That's right. Yeah. Well, we're going to take a short break. And, and when we come back, we want to talk about this concept about how, and you bring it up in the book, about you know, how do sales reps, how do companies maintain relevance you know, moving forward in this environment that you described. So, but before we go, I, I pose a question right before the break, every, every guest on the show. And so I'm going to pose this hypothetical scenario. We'll get your answer after the break. So here it is. You're, you've been hired as a new sales manager in a company whose sales have basically stalled out and they really need to be turned around. Senior management's really got to focus on making sure this happens quickly. So what are the two things you would do your first week on the job that could have the biggest impact? So think about that, and we'll take your answer after the break. After the break, I'll be back with my guest, Tom Searcy. Hi, this is Andy. Connect and Sell is used by sales reps at nearly a 1,000 companies, including hundreds of technology startups and several Fortune 500 companies, to overcome the challenges of getting prospects on the phone. Companies using Connect and Sell grow their revenues faster by enabling their sales reps to have more sales conversations in 90 minutes than they could otherwise achieve in an entire week. Connect and Sell can be deployed directly to your sales reps, or you can take advantage of their outbound on-demand service, which delivers qualified prospect meetings scheduled directly on your sales reps' calendars. Visit connectandsell.com to learn more about how Connect and Sell can start filling your pipeline today. Welcome back. My guest today, Tom Searcy, author of a new book, Life After the Death of Selling, How to Thrive in the Era, in the New Era of Sales, excuse me, as well as co-author of a well-known book, Whale Hunting, How to Land Big Sales and Transform Your Company. So, Tom, before the break, I'd pose the scenario to you. Your new sales manager hired into a company needs to have a sales turnaround. What two things would you do on the first week on the job that have the biggest impact? Well, sales managers, when they're evaluated out there in the marketplace, have the two most effective uh, tools that they have. The, the, the studies that show the biggest impact that they make is, number one, is picking the sales targets for their salespeople. I mean, they pick the exact companies I want you to call on. The second thing they do is to ride along and provide input on the sales calls uh, that their salespeople are making. So in the first week, I would ask to break down the territories or targets of their customers and their prospects and look at what their performance has been with inside of those and really do an analysis of where you're going, who you're spending time with, and what your yield out of doing that, including uh, current customers and new prospects that you're doing. I would want to break that down and find out what was going on. Second thing I would want to do, I'd want to assess my salespeople. I'd get in the car uh, or I'd get on the plane and I'd start spending time with them in front of customers. There's no better way to understand what I have to work with than spending time with the people. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Great answer. I like it. All right. And very short, too, compared to most. <laughs> very concise compared to most of the hair. So, uh, excellent. So, Let's talk about this concept of relevance, and you, this is an important topic you bring up in your new book, but is that if, if companies want to maintain relevance to their customers, is they have to solve, you say they have to solve bigger problems for the customer. So explain what you mean. Well, 
if you're going to move out into the level of an, a senior executive sponsor, and as we start to sell larger and larger deals, you need a senior executive to uh, sponsor you because uh, the budgets are bigger, the uh, sign-offs and the final decision are bigger, and the impact inside of the organization is going to be bigger. And so the problems have to be bigger. They move from product quality, service, and price. Those are lower level decisions. Those are the kinds of decisions that a CEO or senior vice president or even a director is going to dele delegate down because those are, you can be quantified in a certain threshold of product performance, a certain threshold of price, or a mm -hmm. certain threshold of service. So you're going to delegate those down. If you go up to those senior executives, their problems are measured in time, money, and risk. So time is not at a level of service. Time is about uh, speed to outcome. Now, outcome is going to be a variety of measures, but they're either trying to get uh, certain kinds of things to happen faster for them, either before board meetings or by end of year or within things that are going to support their customers. Money is going to be something around the overall organization's ability to produce profit or reduce overall cost, not incremental cost. Right. And risk is going to be something that's going to take down the overall effective risk of the organization's ability to perform and sustain its, uh, its value over time. It can even include, how do I take things out of my balance sheet and move them into my income statement? Those kinds of movements that happen, those are the large pieces. When we go back to what you were doing in Silicon Valley, those are the kinds of things, time, money, and risk, that were not measured against price, product quality, and service. Sure, there were incremental measures downstream, but the kinds of things that you were talking about, senior executives, you were talking in the language of time, money, and risk. Yes. Okay. So how does a, a smaller company, you know, this is, you know, it's maybe not accustomed to selling something, you know, that that's quite that size or that complex. You know, how do they, how do they start that process of, of structuring themselves to go after this type of business? Well, they first have to change the lens through which they look at the customer. Most uh, companies that we start our work with, when we ask you what is your value to your client or your customer and how do you speak about it, they normally say, well, we sell the following things and our customers value us because of this. And that's product, quality, service, and price. Mm -hmm. And then we go and say, okay, what are the problems that the CEO, president, and senior executives, what do they have that you fix? You know, what is the issue that they're trying to fix? And by the way, when you're fixing that, I don't want you to use or list any of the terms or names or words associated with your product, quality, or service, or price. They struggle a lot with that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm because everything they think they're selling. So we're talking to a printing company, and the printer wants to use printing. You know, companies buy us for our printing. The president of another company doesn't buy you for your printing. You know, they buy you because you're able to get a change out in the marketplace of how their customers look at them. Or you're able to give, if they only had three cycles, which they could get marketing messages out in the marketplace because you're more efficient. They're able to get five cycles of marketing message out, out in the marketplace. So they have uh, two more marketing messages and so on. So you become much different because all printers can print well, but that's not the problem that they really have. So you got to get to time, money, and risk. And so changing the lens to look at what the problem a senior executive has is the first thing that they have to do. 
And so put the lens around to what are the problems of senior executives and then talk about the problem. Don't talk about your service. And well, here's a, a question that's sort of interesting to, to me as I was going through the book and, and reading this is that is, you know, I sort of tell when I work with customers and I talk about this in my book is, you know, products are fall into one of two categories. They're either strategic products or tactical products. Right, ninety nine percent of the products in the world are sort of tactical products. You know, it's the paper clips, the paper, the you know things that sort of mundane things. So if you're and strategic products necessarily, as you said, involve more time, money, and risk. So the decision has to be made higher in the organization. So if you've been accustomed to sort of and you sell primarily tactical products, how do you suddenly start becoming more strategic? Well, so uh, I re- by the way, it's a great question. So I think you start off by laying out the, the org chart of titles inside of your customer base. And there's a bandwidth of naming the kinds of problems that they have. So if we start off at the bottom and it's paper clips and at the top, it's overall uh, reduction of spend inside of non-revenue generating areas like mm-hmm. office supplies. <clears throat> and then you can name those things. It's very possible your company can sell to every band of management, right? Down here, they still need cheap paper clips, right? Right. Up here, they need a more efficient way of having uh, transparency down through non-revenue generating uh, pieces of purchase, right? So as you start to look at that, you're going to see tactical, tactical and strategic and strategic uh, effect inside of those particular customers. And so that helps you to look at the bandwidth. And one of the things that's interesting to me is that as you're selling to people inside of the same company, you can get three sales inside of a company because different buyers are seeking different solutions. One of the things, one of the phrases that we often use is you get sent to whom you sound like. Yes. So if you sound like someone at the managerial level, you'll be talking to managers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, I think that's absolutely true. Yeah, I, I, I like to talk about, you know, who who cares about this, right? It's sort of defining it. And as you talk about in that strategic term, you know, who, who cares about this topic from a strategic standpoint within a company? Because eventually yeah. you find, as you said, you find the title that does. That's right. Excellent. So the key thing that you talk about then is being able to special or mobilize a team of specialists. And this this also, you know, has a certain... Uh, adherents and and people that disagree with this quite violently within sales in terms of you know how specialized your specialized knowledge your sales team needs to have uh so how does a again a smaller company start building this this team of subject matter experts and real ultimate specialists to be able to help work with the customer do this co-creation process um you know what's the first step I think the first step is to ask who's going to be in the room from the buyer's side of the equation. So if finance is going to be in the, uh, in the room, uh, whether it's procurement or purchasing or supply chain management or someone from the finance department, here's who they do not want to speak to. They don't want to talk to the salesperson. It doesn't matter how knowledgeable the salesperson is. It says sales on their business card. That is not uh, – who they want to talk to. They want to talk to somebody who's got a finance background or someone is in the finance department. So instead of looking internally, who do I want to bring or talk to? You look at the people across the table and say, uh, who wants to speak? Uh, to whom do they want to speak? 
And I think the guarantee is they do not want to speak to the salesperson. Right. Executive sponsor, uh, the person with whom uh, the salesperson speaks, yes, they want to talk to the salesperson. Everyone else wants to speak to a peer. I think it's a great a great lesson. And it's fundamental to that is selling is really a team sport, especially as you work to the bigger, more strategic deals. The whole organization has to be involved. It does. And they, the, the piece about it is, is that the people that are involved do not have to have the responsibility of selling. Right. Their job isn't to sell. Their job is to problem solve. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Oh, it's a great, great, great way to say that. And again, you're also, I, the way I like to help with companies when they think about that too, is that you're providing a service to your customer. Yeah, you know, again, not selling, but providing a service. Agreed. And the more confidence that uh, the customer has in your ability to provide the service, uh, the easier, you know, this is not one of these closes where you press the, you know, push the document across the, uh, you know, the board and you say, you know, press hard. Yeah, three copies. Yeah. Yeah. That's not the way you, you, know, you close a big deal. No, no. Those, those decisions are, are made while you're not even in the room. So, uh, well, good. Well, it's been a great discussion. You know, wish we'd had more time to, to talk about this, but for small companies, Big deals can really be, yeah, you know, the way to grow your company. Yeah, maybe lot of companies tend to think that it has to be, you know, we got to expand number of salespeople and broaden the territory and get lots of smaller deals. Where actually, as you talk about, it's really almost the opposite. Is focus on some bigger opportunities, more strategic. That can really be the driver for growth. Exactly. Excellent. Okay. Well, good. We're gonna move to the last segment of the show. Where I've got some rapid fire questions for you. You can give me one word answers or you can elaborate as much as you wish. Are you ready? Yes. So what's the most powerful sales tool in your arsenal? Questions. Name one tool you use for managing your own sales that you can't live without. Uh, pipeline management tool. Which one do you use? Pipeliner. Pipeliner. Okay. Who's your sales role model? Oh, that's a good one. Uh, my father. Excellent. He sold, you said, packaging equipment or... Packaging equipment, custom equipment, and packaging materials. Yes. So besides your own book, what's the one book every salesperson should read? Um, the Effective Executive by Drucker, so that you can understand how to think like higher level executives think. No, great suggestion. Here's the toughest question. So what's your favorite music to listen to to sort of psych yourself up or pump yourself up? <laughs> I like to listen to probably a little bit harder uh, rock. Okay, uh, such as? Uh, I like ACDC. Oh, add one more to the list. That's number one on the list, by the way, over, over about 70 interviews we've done so far. Uh, <laughs> ACDC wins out. Uh, what's the first sales activity you do every day? Uh, stretch. Um, and then after that, I mean, that honestly, it's stretch and yeah. uh, stretch and meditation. I, I like visualization. Okay. And so those, those things help me, uh, prepare. Excellent. So when you say you're stretching, do you have a, like a yoga routine or, uh, kind of a couple of yoga stretches and then uh, the same kinds of stretches that you do for athletics. And then do you have a particular sport? Um, running, running. Okay. Training for anything right now? Uh, right now, I would say a half marathon. Excellent. Excellent. You've done one before? Yeah, I've done a bunch of half marathons and two marathons. Ah, good. Yeah, I'm doing a number of half marathons these days, too. It's perfect, perfect distance. Um, yeah, better than marathons. <laughs> yeah. 
yeah, I don't have the desire to do that. So last question is, what's the one question you get asked most frequently by salespeople? Um, they, I, I get asked a lot, how do I get past the person who's in my way? Basically, how do I get past my current, my current contact to get to their boss without um, offending the person who's in my way? And the answer is? You have to get them interested in impressing their boss because you're taking a new idea to that boss that aligns with their, meaning the, your prospect, branding that they're trying to show their boss. And there's four branding styles that you're really trying to get that they have when they're going towards their boss. And you have to reinforce that branding that they're trying to represent themselves as. So in essence, the trying to get your contact to also take some ownership in this idea or put them, have them think they're taking ownership in that idea that they present forward. So it's their idea they're taking to their boss. That's right. And the, and the idea has to be bigger than the bigger and more complex than themselves being able to present it. Oh, like it. Well, that's a great, great suggestion. Great suggestion. Well, good. Well, Tom, I want to thank you for joining me today. Uh, my guest again has been Tom Searcy, author of Life After the Death of Sales. Tom, how can folks find out more about you? Best place is to go to huntbigsales.com. We have an enormous amount of free material on that huntbigsales.com uh, that people can access. We love people to access that material and get connected. We like to see Davies beat Goliaths. Excellent. Excellent. Me too. Well, remember, friends, make it a part of your day every day to deliberately learn something new to help you accelerate your success. And subscribing to this podcast is an easy way to do that because then you'll make sure you don't miss any of our conversations with top business experts like our guest today, Tom Searcy, who share their experience and expertise about how to accelerate the growth of your business. So thanks for joining us. And until next time, this is Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard and want to make sure you don't miss any upcoming episodes, please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Stitcher.com. For more information about today's guests, visit my website at andypaul.com.